take your Bibles and open up to Zechariah chapter 4. The very end of your Old Testament before the last prophet. So Matthew, back up to Malachi, back up a little further into Zechariah chapter 4. We will be in Revelation um, this morning. But I think this will set the stage and we'll be here, we'll be back to Revelation and we'll be back to Zechariah before you know it too. Um, as we look towards our message this morning, one note for my faithful friend RD is I don't have an iPad, so whenever he gets back, he can toggle along and you'll, you'll uh, at least have some help with the, the main points if he can do that for me. Let's pray and then let's jump in together. Father, thank you for our time. Just what a blessing it has been, even as you have promised in Revelation chapter 1, to look not only <coughs> at the things that are, but the things that will be in the future, even as we see from last week, the continuation of this interlude between the final trumpet that is to come, the seventh trumpet, and see what you would have your people see and understand as we see the final judgment on this world, on the usurpers, Satan and his followers, as Christ reclaims what is rightfully his, as he has patiently waited, redeeming his people, his church now, and even as he is faithful to Israel in this tribulation as we look towards the future. We just pray that we would be encouraged this morning as we look to him. We ask this in his son's name. Amen. Well, if you look at Zechariah chapter 4, I want to give a picture that then will hopefully be familiar as we come to Revelation chapter 11. So we're going to read together Revelation or Zechariah chapter 4 and to get some framework because... The intention of Revelation 11 is that you would have a moment, not only of keeping all of the Old Testament always running in your mind, always having God's word hidden in your heart, but also that certain places would be more evident, would be more come to mind as we look at specific places like the two witnesses in Revelation 11. And Zechariah 3 and 4, we'll just look at 4 and reference 3, is one of those places. So here in Zechariah chapter 3 and 4 is the rebuilding. They're coming back into the promised land. Um, they're coming back from captivity. And you're more, more familiar perhaps with Nehemiah, Ezra. But there's a guy named Zerubbabel. And there's a high priest named Joshua that are vitally important as well. And Zerubbabel and Joshua are going to be a picture that is picked up on in Revelation chapter 11. But this fifth vision in chapter 4 describes a golden lampstand that will pop up in Revelation 11. Verse 1, it says, Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was roused from his sleep. Sounds a little familiar to Revelation already. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see. And behold, a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it. One on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. And then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these? 
my Lord? And so the angel was speaking with me and answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. And then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. He will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also, the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of Yahweh which roam to and fro throughout the earth. And then I answered and I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? And he spoke to me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my lord. And then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. As you come and you look and you see this vision, you have this picture of the two olive trees or the two olive branches and golden pipes leading to this golden uh, basin that is filled. This lampstand or the picture you'd have is of that menorah, uh, Jewish menorah. Of candles lit. And look at verse 10, a classic verse that can be taken out of context, context, which is, For who has despised the day of small things? That's the kind of sentence you can just launch and preach a sermon with all kinds of good things, but not necessarily biblical, and definitely not what the text is speaking. Because you come to mind, and you can imagine that you could go and you could preach a whole sermon on. Don't despise little things or little people. And who couldn't but be tempted to reference the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings? Don't despise the little Hobbit. He can change the fates of everyone. But this is, in this context, meant to encourage the people to say, Look, the seven will be glad when they see the plumb line. In the hand of Zerubbabel. What is a plumb line? Well, if you don't know much about a plumb line or you don't know much about leveling, this is a building analogy. And, of course, the context is they're going back to build the temple. And the governor is Zerubbabel. And he's got, maybe if you have a better visual, a tape measure and a bunch of rubble. Don't despise the fact that Little things have happened so far. It's not so little that they've come back, just as promised after seven years of captivity. It's not so little that they are there with the plumb line, with the tape measure, ready to rebuild the second temple. And he's saying, don't despise the day of small things. The Lord is about to do great things. And what she's in is talking of these great things being done through the two anointed ones in verse 14 who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now flip over to Revelation chapter 11 and that refers both to Joshua in chapter 3 verse 1, the high priest and Zerubbabel, the governor. And a similar picture like we've seen so many times in Revelation 
is picked up on this same thing where Zechariah over and over again not only discusses the initial, what we would call the first coming of Christ, but also then the second coming. It references the salvation of Israel when they look on whom they shall pierce. And that hasn't happened, not nationally yet. And so there's aspects of Zechariah's prophecy which have come true and parts of it that have not come true. And there's things, I think, like in chapter 4 that look towards something and you see in a similar way the two witnesses and you should click to go, oh, the temple has been rebuilt. So if you take Herod's temple as a third temple, we understand that the temple has to be built for these things in Revelation to come to fruition. And so this would be the fourth temple. And there are going to be these two witnesses that are going to be God's men. They're going to be God's preachers, God's voice in this day. They're going to be these two witnesses. We've seen again and again Revelation. This is the second coming of Christ, which is in judgment. This is the day of the Lord. This is the time, as Jeremiah says, of Jacob's trouble, particularly the tribulation, the great tribulation as we move towards the second three and a half years. We saw last week that the delay in chapter 10 is no longer. We're in between the, we have the six seals and then the seventh seal is described as seven trumpets. And we're between that sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. The, he's going to say the second woe at the end of this chapter is past. But oh, the third woe is coming quickly, being that final seventh trumpet, which we won't get to this morning. But that's the place that we are. As a reminder, as you look back to chapter 10 last week, we saw that there becomes this interlude where he sees the strong angel come out. And we saw how we should be encouraged and that those alive should be encouraged. Because God is going to fulfill his word. The delay, verse 6, will be no longer. The mystery of God will be finished. And it's answering that question of the saints. When will you intervene? And he goes and he takes the scroll, which we understood is the scroll that comes from chapter 6. And he was commanded to take and eat it, which is why I think it's called a little scroll, because he's got to eat it. And it makes his stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And then in verse 10, that's exactly what happens. But he must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Let me note here, and then we'll come back towards the end. But you can't help but see a similar structure where the interlude in chapter 7 discusses similar things. It talks about the 144,000 that are sealed. And then it also talks about the nations. And the same thing in this interlude is he introduces it with the angel and this little scroll that John eats that is both bitter and sweet. Sweet because it's the Lord coming back and delaying no longer and dealing out judgment. But bitter in that there is devastation on humanity and on the world. That's the pathway to a new heavens and a new earth. And so it's bitter in that way. But he must prophesy again of the peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So you get to chapter 11 and you see a pattern. Not only do you see the pattern that we saw between... The sixth and the seventh seal, an interlude. 
discussing 144,000 and the nations, you see a pattern here then of between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, an interlude. But you also see both Israel addressed and the nations addressed. And I don't think that's an accident. I don't think we learn necessarily something radically different in one sense. We learn more specifically. We learn the general idea of being encouraged that the Lord remembers his people. He remembers those even in the midst of this final and worst woe, worst judgment, the seventh trumpet. He remembers his people. And he will always have a voice. The way I've looked at this and the way I, just for an outline this morning, is there are three reminders as we look at God's character that I think we can see and be comforted by in suffering. The context here is not the church. The church has been raptured. But in a similar way, you can look and you can read Old Testament. You can see what God, how he was faithful in the past. We can likewise look to the future and learn lessons about who he is. You learn lessons about his unchanging character and the way that he works. Because he works here in a similar way to the way that he has always worked. And you're going to see his faithfulness to Israel. And you're going to see that he's going to met out judgment. And he's going to be faithful to his promises to judge the world as well. And so we're looking at it from that perspective that we're being reminded again of his faithfulness, of his character. Look at me at verse 1 and verse 2. And first off, what we are reminded of is that God owns it all. God owns it all. It begins, Then a measuring rod like a staff was given to me, saying, Get up and measure the sanctuary of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Again, this assumes a temple. And of course, we already have assumed the temple because there has to be a temple for uh, the beast, the Antichrist, to make that treaty, that seven-year treaty in. And it has to be uh, him to create the abomination of desolation. And the middle of that seven period is prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And he's saying, get up. John, measure the sanctuary of God and the altar and those who worship in it and leave out the court which is outside the sanctuary and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months. It's the beginning of very specific numbers but the more familiar with the Old Testament you are the more you recognize them. 42 months is 36 plus 6 Three and a half years. Just to look at verse 3 for a moment. They will prophesy for 1260 days. 1260 days, 360 times three and a half. You don't have to get out of the calculator. That's what it is. And then if you were to go back to Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. And you would see that it talks about that in the middle of this seventh week. Or this, this seven year period. That... This is going to happen, the abomination of desolation that the, all the discourse Jesus even references. And so it seems to be referring clearly, very specifically to this last three and a half period of this great tribulation. And they're going to minister 
during that period of 42 months, but also it's they're going to minister in the midst of the Gentiles trampling the holy city, which is Jerusalem, underfoot. But what about the measuring rod? What about the measuring rod? What about the plumb line of Zerubbabel? This is the picture of measuring like a surveyor. The one who measures is the one who owns. If you were to take a survey of the property you own or you were to buy a new property, you would perhaps come out and say, whose is this? And you would survey it off and say, you can't build your fence there, neighbor, because this property is mine. I had a surveyor. They did a survey and they said, this is mine. This is yours. And that's the idea here in verse 1 that he's saying, get out, measure the sanctuary of God, set it apart. This is mine. But the outer court, the court of the Gentile, he's saying, that is not under my protection. That is where the Gentiles then, the city will be devastated over 42 months. We're not going to go there, but if you were to go to the discourse and you see, flee to the mountains. That's this period. Flee. Because devastation is coming to Jerusalem. There are, yes, the sealing, the, the sealed 144,000, but not yet is all Israel saved. In fact, Jerusalem is compared to Sodom and to Egypt, which is to say, wickedness is prevalent there. But the survey demonstrates ownership. I even think the significance of letting the Gentiles go. You see this distinction yet again just to point out another kind of unpleasant inference for the church not being there. If we were to go to the book of Ephesians and we'd see that the, the wall between the Jew and the Gentile is tore down. Yet there seems to be just like in chapter 7 that distinction between the Jew and the Gentile is here yet again. Because God is now working back through Israel. 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days. God is in complete control. His temple is his own. His people are his own. God is in control in the midst of suffering. And I imagine that that generation, when you talk about the Alba Discord, talk about that generation. I think this is that generation. The access to Scripture, and they will be comforted that they know not everything, but they know he is the one, even over these horrific judgments, that he is in control. That nothing is happening outside of his gaze. It's comfort to that generation. And then, of course, to us, as you look forward, it's a comfort to us today. I don't mean to make light of suffering, but often you hear the analogy that life is a roller coaster. You could argue, yeah, but roller coasters are fun. Um, and, and so I don't mean to make light, but there, there is a sense in which when my boys and I, and we, we jump on a roller coaster, we have a certain level of trust that the engineers did their job and that you can go up and you can go down and you go upside down and you go 70 miles an hour and you can have fun, all the while trusting the fact that this thing isn't going to go off the rails. Those of you who hate roller coasters probably identify better than this because many of us have never thought something bad could happen. But I know some of you have found the articles where the two or three times where something bad did happen. And you say, but it could happen. And it could happen. Why are you writing it? Well, I guess I trust that this is safe despite it being scary and not knowing if it'll fail today. You put trust in that. 
There's a similar way in which you understand during suffering you have to trust that this is scary. This is unknown. I don't know what will happen next. But you trust that the engineer of life, that God the designer is in control. And I don't understand, but I just know, and very specifically, we know as we look towards the future, Revelation, we know exactly where it is headed. And so I'm okay. If you are struggling and you're going, this is, there's hard things, go ahead, skip over. Go to Revelation 19, 20, 21. Go ahead. We'll get there eventually. But if you need to go there, I'm okay with that. Because we need to be reminded that ultimately this is where it is headed. That God is redeeming this world. Where he will take care of everything. But along the way, it's through these means where there's lots of difficulty and suffering. And this generation is going to face suffering that our suffering will pale in comparison to. But don't be mistaken in verse 1. He is in control. Another comfort is, he's not only in control, but he is not silent. God is not silent. In every generation, you could say in every dispensation, God has his voice. Here, in this three and a half year period, the great tribulation, before uh, the last three and a half years of the tribulation... He has his voice, which is not only the 144,000 that are sealed, but specifically there are two, like the prophets of old, who will prophesy. Not necessarily tell the future, but like the prophets of old, they will recount what God demands. And they will call people to repentance. So even though there's great judgment, even though the world is literally ending, God will not do so without a voice And these two witnesses will play that role, being his voice, his prophetic voice to the world. Look at verse 3. It says, I will give authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days, so three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. Kind of reminded of the beginning of Mark um, when it talks about John the Baptist and the way he's dressed. He's out there eating locusts and honey and wearing hair as a belt. What does he look like? He looks like a prophet, right? Same thing here. They're, they're dressed in sackcloth. And that they're, they're, they're looking in a way in which they are mourning because, of course, the city is being destroyed. And they're dressed in a way of uniquely that you would walk by and go, oh, this is not the latest trend from Paris. These are sackcloth. They're in mourning. They're easily identified to the world. And the description is, and this is where it's helpful for Zechariah, verse 4 is that there, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. It's that same picture that he is going to work through these two in a similar way, likewise, that he worked through Joshua and he worked through Zerubbabel. And the picture is, what do you need for lampstands? We live in a light switch world with electricity, right? You just turn the light on, turn the light off. Electricity goes and gives you power and... Turns it off, breaks the circuit, and turns it off. Well, in this culture, you need fuel. You need oil. And so the picture is the oil, which comes from the olive trees. I looked up a few different pictures, but in essence, you imagine two trees. The picture is you, you put the, um, those golden pipes into the tree. I don't know why. I don't, we don't do oil. I, I, for whatever reason, I picture maple syrup. You know, they, they, they put the spigots in and out pours 
maple syrup. It's that idea. They put them into the olive trees, and out of the olive trees comes olive oil. And the two lampstands that stand before the Lord, and it is ultimately pouring in, in which God is working through them, fueling them to be his witnesses and his ministers to the rest of Israel and to, to the world. And they're unique. They're unique in that they, if anyone wishes to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. So if anyone wishes to harm them, he must be killed in this way. I think you would learn pretty quickly, don't get close. But they have a mission and they're not going to be stopped short of that mission. Yes, the Lord is in control. And yes, they're going to eventually be martyred, but not one moment before the Lord's perfect timing. So they have a power that, that I know of, none of us have. They consume people with fire. They have the authority, verse 6, to shut up the sky, that is, drought, so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, which is interesting, and there's some debate. Never rain over that three and a half period, perhaps? Or does it mean something a little bit shorter of those period, but it could simply mean there's no rain, which of course that would definitely stress the earth, but the third woe was coming, so that wouldn't be a complete shock. They also have the authority, it says, over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they wish. And when they have finished their witness, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Before we go on, the question is often asked, who are the two witnesses? And of course, because the text doesn't tell us exactly, you're left with wondering. And there's really kind of three major views. And you understand why they are what they are. And probably the first and most primary one would be the ones who are associated with these kinds of miracles. Because when we see people being consumed by fire, you go, depending on how... Recently you read 2 Kings, you go, I know that. That's exactly, go back to 2 Kings chapter 1 and you'll find Elijah consuming people with fire by 50s. Groups of 50 consumed, boom, consumed, consumed. And so they look towards Elijah. And of course you have the end of Malachi where they await Elijah. And there's a sense in which John the Baptist came like Elijah. But there's still an expectation that he comes in person. So a lot of people believe this is one of these witnesses is Elijah. And then the other one, they would say, who turned water into blood? You go back to Exodus chapter 7, you know, I know that plague. And so they look and they see Moses, and then you have this transfiguration on the mount in the Gospels where the two people that show up to minister to Jesus are Moses and Elijah. And so that could very well be. I'm not going to be dogmatic on that, but that very well could be. Elijah as well pointed to a man who wants to die. And if you remember Elijah, he didn't die. He got caught up into heaven, which is actually similar to what is going to happen to both of them after their resurrection. Which is why the second view is that it's Elijah and Enoch, because they're the two who got caught up into heaven. He was walking with the Lord, and then he walked no more. Or you can take a third view and... I don't know. You know. You're always fairly safe there, but we don't want to be too quick to say, I don't know. We want to recognize it seems to be here that probably the strongest argument is that Malachi, um, looking that 
Elijah is supposed to return. So that's probably one of the strongest arguments that one of them is Elijah. But they have this ability, these miraculous powers to protect themselves and to strike the earth with every plague, which I tend to think is every plague, every plague, or probably at least the ten that we know of. So not just the water turning into blood, but all the other plagues, they can do it as often as they wish. This is not one of the spiritual gifts. This is not a revelatory gift. This is not a miraculous gift from the New Testament. This is wholly unique, which of course makes sense as you look towards this period and the end of history. And so they are there and they are ministering. But when they finish their witness, which again goes back to the sovereign one, the king, who says, all right, you've done what you need to do. You proclaimed this truth. The people can't avoid. They want to kill you and get rid of you so they don't have to listen to you. This is the person who's nagging you and saying something you don't want them to say anymore, but you can't get to them. You can't turn it off. You can't turn the radio. You can't turn the station because they just keep preaching. But when their witness is finished, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. The first reference here of the beast we're going to have in Revelation, there's going to be 35 more. And every time it's talking about the Antichrist. And it's another reminder Back to chapter 9. Who allowed the pit to be opened? Right? Even God was in control of that. That Satan was given the key to the pit. And out of that is going to come the Antichrist. The beast reference over and over again. If you're wondering, well, where's Satan in this? Well, he is more often referenced as the dragon. Which we'll see more and more in the coming chapters. But it would seem here that the beast, the Antichrist, comes up out of the abyss, makes war with them, these two witnesses, and overcomes them and kills them. But again, not until their witness is finished. And then something interesting happens, verse 8. It says, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom, and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Sometimes you get caught in imagery of, what are we talking about here? Sodom, Egypt. Wasn't Jesus crucified in Jerusalem? And I'd say, yes. But he's saying spiritually, what he's saying is, they are, uh, Jerusalem is not acting according to their name. In fact, they're wicked, like Sodom, like Egypt. But their bodies are there in the street where Christ was crucified in Jerusalem. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations. So that's back to that terminology. You see, likewise, in chapter 7. So again, we have an address of what about Israel? What about the people, tribes, nations? What are they doing? Well, they are going to look at the dead bodies for three and a half days. I think outside of any context here, you just, it seems to be, is it related to three and a half years? I think it's just probably literally three and a half days. It's the best way to take it. Why? Because there just has to be enough time for this to sink in and have the effect that the Lord wants it to have. But in those three and a half days, peoples, tribes, tongues, nations, the leaders, they will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. So there's some exposure. There's some way in which, and I'm no fan of reading technology back into Revelation, but of course, with the technologies that we have, how does the world see the, these Two witnesses, how do they see the dead bodies? And it's not that much of a stretch given the technology that we have today and television and um, breaking away from 
an event, and all of a sudden, every single station has the same thing on it. So they all look. They all see. But they don't mourn. They're not sad. They throw a party. Verse 10, they, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They're excited. They, let's celebrate. Let's buy you a present, buy you a present, buy everybody a present. Because these two were tormentors. They pointed out what was obvious in a way in which the world did not want to listen. But then after those three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. Why this whole event? It's another demonstration in history, in time, in this place where God is demonstrating his power. There's a moment where Satan is cast out of heaven, which we're going to get here soon, to that. Where he has his moment in the sun, as it were. People might even be tempted that there's, there's hope. That is for wicked humanity. And God demonstrates yet again that, no, he is the one in control. And why would you fear? Because he has power over life and death. No one has that kind of power except for the Lord himself. God is not silent. It's a reminder that in the midst of difficultness of suffering that he has spoken. Here he speaks through his two witnesses, through their preaching. He preaches through their death. And he proclaims through their resurrection in a way that everyone hears. I don't know if they speak when they're raised from the dead here. It doesn't say. But would they have to? One day you saw two people dead, and that's long enough for decomposition, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're raised, uh, raised from the dead and given life. You see them? You would not have to say a word. Great fear would fall upon you just as well, especially when you were just rejoicing and dancing in the street. But the tables are turned. They are God's voice, God's tool during this time. The same way in which you look at us, the church today, we're meant to be God's voice to the world. In the same way, we're promised that in the New Testament there is difficulty in suffering that only comes with life, but also comes with being a witness. You look at all of 1 Peter, where he even talks about the fact that you should be suffering for righteousness, not just suffering because of. things that you know, are, are difficult, but understanding that it comes through being God's representative like these two witnesses here. 1 Timothy 3.15 says that the church is the living church, the church of the living God, which is to be the pillar and the support of truth. In this moment in history, the two witnesses are God's voice of truth, but today you and I should be God's spokesman for truth. In what context? In every context, whether that's at 
work, at school, at home, in your community. You're not the truth. You're just the pillar in support of it. Right? You are the messenger, just like these two. You don't want to be confused that somehow we, we, we embody it in that way, but we are the means by which God is flowing his witness, similar to the way he's flowing his witness through these two. You may not be as flashy. You, you may not be uh, spitting out fire, consume people, which is probably good. Um, no resurrections that I know of, but don't downplay it, that that is the role that we have to play in the world today. Because in no age, whether it was Noah, the preacher of righteousness before the flood, whether it was Israel, who was supposed to be a city on a, a light on the hill, or whether it's to be the church today preaching the gospel, going to the nations, God will always have his ones who speak for him. And we look forward to seeing here with the two, yes, God is doing it then, but don't think for a moment he's not speaking now. And I think it's an encouragement just to know again that he is speaking through his church today, through his word today. Lastly, what should encourage us in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, especially we're looking at the immense suffering, incomparable to what we even have today towards the end, is this reality, which is no matter how difficult any circumstance is, one reality is always true, and that is that God will receive glory. He's going to receive it one way or the other. Because he is going to be faithful to his promises to the church, faithful to his promises to Israel, faithful to his promises to the world, faithful to his promise to save, faithful to his promise to judge. God is faithful to his promises. As I said, if you zoom back out and you look at the bigger picture of this pattern in Revelation of looking back to chapter 7, where he addresses Israel and he addresses the nations in between the 6th and the 7th seal. In a similar way, he addresses the world. And he addresses Israel here in chapters 10 and 11. And a similar lesson of his faithfulness to his promises that he has not forgotten. That you're not left to wonder completely, what about, what about, what about? He tells you. What about Israel? He tells you. What about the nations? There's no question about what is about the church, which I think is significant here because it goes back to the church being in heaven with the Lord. But we're still left with questions. And he gives answers that help us see that he will receive glory one way or the other. That he will deal out judgment. He will receive glory from his justice. Or he will receive glory from those who repent and call out on his name. And you see both here in verses 13 and 14. Because it says, in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Which in some ways, if all we've been through, it doesn't seem as much, but that's still a massive amount of people being killed in the midst of an earthquake in Jerusalem. And the rest were terrified. And then this is interesting, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. The second one was passed, behold, the third Woe is coming quickly. That is, the seventh trumpet is about to be blown. But you needed to know this information before it blows. 
Many believe here this is where the promise of Romans chapter 11, that all Israel will be saved, is fulfilled. And I tend to think so as well. Because you look, the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And you go, maybe there's a way in which they give glory uh, and don't repent. But it's, it's, it's kind of hard to see that. It seems to be here as they address this issue that they, in Jerusalem, look. And there's a moment here. And they look on the one, as Zechariah says, Zechariah 12, whom they pierce. And it's not just 144,000, but it is the rest. And then it being fulfilled that all nation, I mean, that all Israel is saved. And so even as horrific as the third woe, as the seventh trumpet is going to be, you get through 10 and 11 and hopefully you're a little encouraged. Not only by God's character and God's nature, but that he is faithful to his people. He's faithful here to Israel. And even through it all, the death of the two witnesses, ultimately, there are those who see it and those who give glory to the God of heaven. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 7. I think there's a similar question asked often of the Old Testament that's, off, that's asked of Revelation. Why study the book of Revelation? So blessing in verse 1. That's why. Oh, but you want some more reasons. Okay. Why study the Old Testament? It's not about the church. Well, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is helping the church at Corinth see, particularly in this case, warning. Because if you know anything about the church at Corinth, they had their problems. Don't be like... Israel is kind of the general lesson here. But if you go to actually verse 6, we'll start chapter 10, verse 6. He says, now these things, because he's been recounting a bit of Israel and the way they were tempted in the wilderness. But he says, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act in sexual morality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. And he's recounting stories that you should be familiar with in the Old Testament. Nor let us put Christ to the test as some did. And were destroyed by the serpents in numbers. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Remember there's only the younger generation that enters the promised land. And he reminds again from verse 6, repeats it. Now these things happen to be as to them as an example that they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have arrived. Very wisely put, therefore, he let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. As you look at passages like Revelation 10, like Revelation 11, like the whole of Revelation, I, I keep coming back to this, that it's tempting to say, this isn't directly about me. But indirectly, it serves, I think, in the same way as an example to learn from. Don't be, think of a negative example, like 
uh, Revelation 11, don't kick against the Lord. Don't fight. Don't arrogantly think you will defeat the king of the universe. So much so that you try to go, I see the power in the two witnesses, but the world, despite fire coming out of their mouths, despite them having the ability to put any of the ten plagues at any point that they want, they don't repent, they don't listen. Take heed, lest you fall. It's a good reminder of we can learn from things that aren't directly about the church. Because in the same ways, we are tempted, maybe to lesser degrees, in a different context. It's not the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, but we can be cautioned as well. And reminded, as we saw this morning, that yes, the Lord is in control. He has a voice. And then, right now that's you. Right now that's me. That's this church. That's the church worldwide. He's faithful to us, and we are called to be faithful ambassadors of the truth of the gospel. And then, with passion, call people to repentance. That they would recognize their own sin, turn from it, repent of it, and turn to Christ. They would say, I need saving. You look at the example of Israel here, or you look at the example of future Israel in a future world. Both lessons drive to the same point. Be quick to repent, quick to look to the Lord, quick to flee as it goes on here in this passage, flee from idolatry, that you might be an effective witness in this age for his gospel and his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we have this morning. Even now, as we look to your table, as we look to proclaiming your death until you return, uh, that we would be faithful to do that, that this would be representative of not only an outward action, but of the desire of our hearts. Encourage us as we continue to see your faithfulness, not only to us today, but in the future. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.